One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop crazy youngsters, and welcome back to part two of Chart Music 47, the Christmas Day 1977 episode. I'm your host, Al Needham, and here I am back again with me little elves, Taylor Parks. Good morning. And Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. Oh, we do like these Christmas ones, don't we? It's a, it's a good chance to just ram a year into our ears and eyes. Yeah, it is. And, and you know... Cultural historians looking for uh, what they expect to see from 1977 will be will be scratching their heads a little bit at this episode. Um, yeah, considering you know what 1977 is always referred to as and what is always yes. talked about with regards to 1977, yeah. this episode's quite an eye opener. Yeah, we're going to see Noel Edmonds as a Santa with a big swastika on the front, aren't we? <laughs> uh, and safety pins hanging from the Christmas tree. <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters, it is time to get stuck into Christmas Day 1977. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. It's ten past two on Sunday, December the 25th, 1977, and we are immediately assailed by a whole lot of love by the Top of the Pops Orchestra and a special message for each and every one of us. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year from Top of the Pops. We then get a fucking weird image that I think is supposed to be a load of baubles, but it looks to me like... Someone with a Brussels sprout for a head, wearing a parka, carrying <laughs> half a watermelon on its shoulder. It's a bit fucking it's tough, strange, that image, it, yeah. isn't it? Mm, very strange. And then after a procession of spoilers after what's going to be on over the next 15 minutes, we're introduced to our hosts, Noel Edmonds and Kid Jensen. Yeah, it was, it was Arthur Schopenhauer, the great German philosopher, who said <laughs> that life swings like a pendulum to and fro between suffering and boredom. Your host tonight, uh, Noel Edmonds and David Kidd Jensen. Edmonds, who is still the leonine overlord of Radio 1, having completed his fourth and final full year as the host of The Breakfast Show. He'll be leaving in April of 1978 to work weekends. He's also into the full flush of his run as the presenter of the Multicoloured Swap Shop, and yesterday morning he hosted Swap of the Pops, a special compilation show which featured ABBA, Bonnie Tyler, The Carvels, Chopin... Chuck Berry, Cliff Richard, Giorgio Moroder, Heatwave, 
Harry Seacombe, The Old Sailor, Mozart, Show Waddy Waddy, Smoker, Status Quo, Tina Charles, Twigger, Vivaldi, Wings, and the Wurzels. <laughs> what a lineup that was. Sadly, this episode was wiped by the BBC, but um, we, we've been given the opportunity to see uh, a, a clip or two from the 1976 version, weren't we? Uh huh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting in the sense that it, it, it wiped out my will to live. <laughs> yeah, it was just a load of clips from uh, videos and previous performances on Swap Shop and. And stuff like that. I mean, the, the only thing that really grabbed me was uh, they did um, If Not You by Dr. Hook. But it was accompanied by uh, illustrations from uh, a school ran your way, wasn't it? Yeah. Junior school at Bethnal Green. They were asked to uh, uh, provide illustrations to go with the lyrics. Which was um, interesting to see uh, to see a song through a child's eyes. <laughs> and not realising that, um, you know, that some of the lyrics were a bit adulterated. Dr. Hook sing, who's going to see that I'm fed? And there was a painting of uh, some bloke sat at a table with a big slap-up meal yeah. going on. Mm. Typical Beano fare, big pile of chips with sausages and pies sticking out of it. And his wife standing next to him looking very pleased with herself. And then the next line, who's going to want me in bed? And uh, the bloke's being tucked in by his wife and probably having a story read to him. Yeah. Kids of that age, they, 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 they weren't sexed up, were they? <laughs> Well, he's you know he's uh, he's been at E Polici's all afternoon and uh, a yeah, <laughs> bit bit full of grease. <laughs> the other host in a wine-coloured flared velvet suit with a ruffled shirt and matching bow tie is Kid Jensen, who has had a meteoric rise through the ranks since joining the station in 1976 from Radio Luxembourg. He's locked down the drive time slot this year, taken over the Saturday mid-morning section from Emperor Roscoe and will be filling in for Alan Friedman at five o'clock this afternoon as the host of a special Champions edition of Quiz Kid, the Radio 1 pop quiz show. He's also been firmly mixed into the rotating cast of Top of the Pops presenters in 1977 and has been rewarded by being Dave Lee Travis's replacement on this year's Christmas Day edition. That would have ruffled some, I was going to say feathers, but more like <laughs> facial pubic hair. <laughs> Travis must have been well fucking dischuffed about that. <laughs> and it throws Noel off as well, I feel. Yeah. He's lost an equally shit funny man. And he's, you know, he's inherited uh, someone who's a bit cooler than him. Well, a lot cooler than him, even yeah. in that outfit. Yeah, well, Kid Jensen is very much the straight man, though, isn't he? Mm. He's, he is mm. a born straight man. Very much so. <laughs> but it's up, to a certain extent, it's a sensible choice getting these exciting young men together on Christmas Day and, <laughs> and having having the kind of old fart knackers around on Boxing Day when everyone's genuinely sat around and just flatulent. But yes. um, yeah, yes. it's it's a sensible choice that only partly works. I find. Yeah, yeah. Travis would end up hosting the Boxing Day episode with Tony Blackburn, and uh, which means that Jingle Nonso Be has been knocked out of the rotation, which is which is good, probably due to um, that moment on the Boxing Day top of the pops last year where he overreacted a bit to Legs and Co. Yeah, we've all been <laughs> oh, God, it's terrifying, that yeah. is. Savile's got to console himself with presenting uh, a, a show on Radio 1, which is on right now, which Radio 1 has chosen to call 
Santa Savile. Oh, Jesus Christ. And he'll be presenting a Christmas Jim will fix it on Boxing Day. So, yeah, he's still around. Of course he is. I I wonder sometimes about Edmunds, right? I was Mm. watching this. I mean, the countless times he's turned up since we've been doing this podcast, I'm now appallingly familiar with... Every aspect of his style, right? So, mm, yeah. such as it is, and the that haphazard verbal pinball that he tries to pass off as wit. Um, mm. And a part yeah. of me thinks there must be something there, right? Because mm. I've always believed that hard work gets you so far and no further, right? Mm. And to make that jump from a kind of you know radio six level of success, which any old fool can achieve, you know, to triple A superstardom within the world of light entertainment. There has to be something else, even if it's not always visible to people like us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, in the same way, there is a reason why Elton John did better than Eric Carmen, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, like it or not. There's surely some quality in some sense of the word that Noel Edmonds possessed beyond the, the psychopathic unflappability required to host live television and a willingness or eagerness to work Saturday mornings and Christmas Day. Um, I mean, for the universe to hold together and existence to make any sense at all, there has to be a secret ingredient. But I don't know what it is. I can't see it, possibly because I don't possess it myself or respond to it. Uh, And possibly, just possibly... Worth considering, because there's something wrong with me. Um, <laughs> and that's why Noel Edmonds lives in a 4,000-room mansion with a helipad in every room. Uh, <laughs> and I'm still on the game. <laughs> I mean, the thing is with Noel, I think I said in the past that Noel, to me as a kid, was harmless at this stage. Because as a child, he seemed to have kind of, at this point, None of the the sort of vaunting ambition that would later characterise his rise to the centre of British life, if you like, mm. um, you know, on on Saturday evenings as well as Saturday mornings. But but really, watching this episode, the signs are all there. Um, really, yeah. he 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 is ambitious, massively ambitious, and he's one of those presenters who like. I would actually, although they're dissimilar in certain ways, stylistically, I would actually compare him to Tony Blackburn in that he relies right. on the kind of natural feel. But this is a massively unnatural person. His natural feel is entirely false. It's a construct. Yeah. It's odd. Mm. He, he's like a politician. It, it's kind yeah. of, it's a put together ease. It's it's a, it's a carefully, painstakingly assembled natural ease with the camera. But I, I think even at this early stage, when he was merely a DJ and TV presenter, I think he already had ideas um, above his station, if you like. Um, that he would be a big, big part of the kind of national public broadcaster's life of all of us. Um, Mm. In contrast, of course, Kid Jensen... Kid Jensen is there because he's proved himself. He's clearly easy to work with, right? And he's smart enough, I think, to know his way around the egos involved with being on top yes. of the pops, including, I think, at this stage, even though he's doing a good way of hiding it, Noel, because clearly there's a massive yeah. ego with Noel, but kids found a way around it, and I think that's why he's yes. there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that said, though initially seeing them uh, on Christmas Day, I would have been quite pleased. I think I might have been disappointed with them two put together, to be honest. I would have missed 
um, the bonhomie of Dave Lee Travis. But you know, I was fucking yeah. five. What did I know? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kid Jensen, you know, he he was a Canadian cat amongst um, several British pigeons at uh, a Radio <laughs> One at this time. Yeah. You know, mm. he's got the accent they are all trying to, you know, pretend mm. they have. Yeah. Uh, see the thing about. David Kid Jensen. As I was, last time he showed up, I was quite pleased with myself because I was able to think of something to say about him. Um, <laughs> and I'd argue it's asking a lot to expect anyone to manage that twice. But just to, <laughs> basically, he is the consummate Danish Canadian, uh, which is yes. what he is, right? He's Pacific, sensible, low temperature, um, mm. semi skim milk in the shape of a man. Um, I mean, if you can say, if, you, if there's nothing else you can say about David Kid Jensen, you you can at least say he is mild. Um, mm, yeah, he is the the Art Garfunkel of the rhythm pals, and uh, <laughs> you know something or other covered in custard and mm. dairyly spread thick on polystyrene. And the thing is, <laughs> within his milieu, being non toxic puts him near the top of the tree as far as I'm mm. concerned. Oh definitely. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like if you if you came across Kid Jensen buried up to his neck in, in sand, would you pretend <laughs> you thought his head was a football? No, you wouldn't. And if if you no. saw somebody else doing it, you'd be genuinely horrified. Like yes. you know, like yeah, a yeah. human being. You'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> right. And for Radio One employees, that is that's praise yeah. indeed. Yeah, if it was Travis, you'd just take a fucking ticket and wait your turn, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) But yes, he is, you know, he is possibly the best presenter of Top of the Pops. He's certainly a chart music favourite because you saw Kid Jensen presenting Top of the Pops. You go, yeah, yeah, he he deserves to be here. But he's not not a rampaging ego who's a bit upset that uh, there might be some people at home who are more interested in looking at some pop stars as opposed to him. Mm, He fits in. Yeah, and he's he's genuinely smooth as well. Like he's yes. genuinely slick. It's not like Noel, where as Neil was saying, that slickness is it's like a skin that he unzips when he gets home. Mm. You know, like that <laughs> humanity. It's like uh, Kid Jensen just turns up and he's okay. This is what I've got to say. He just says it. One take mm. sounds completely natural. And yeah, thank you very much, David. Let's move on to the next. Thing. You know, it's, mm. you've got to admire it. You've got to admire it. Yeah. Because you can't, it's, it's, I'm absolutely agree with Neil. You look at Noel and all you see here is just like cogs turning behind his eyes, you know, like he's <laughs> just, you know, planning. The one thing you can't uh, see at this point in his life is his later descent into crank occultism. <laughs> you know, it's, it, that hasn't started yet. Although, as someone I know once said, the 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 early warning here, the sinister thing about the young Noel Evans is that when you look at him, his head does contain both the pyramid and the eye. <laughs> <laughs> both of them kind of like turned out, shall we say. Edmonds is still in his... Uh... In his head was suit. I mean, fuck knows what kids thinking wearing that. <laughs> yeah, he looks like he's on his way to the prom that Carrie. Yes. Um, the- <laughs> yeah, or he's or he's, he's got a gig with the stylistics afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't suit him at all, man. Yeah, I mean, it is Christmas. It, you do want him a little bit dressed up. Yeah, but yeah, he he don't look right. At least neither of them are wearing the Santa outfit with the swastika, <laughs> shouting "Jesus is dead." So what? <laughs> <laughs> Is that boxing day? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Hello, Mr. 
a very, very Merry Christmas to you all. Welcome to the Christmas edition of Top of the Pops. We hope that you got the prezzies you wanted and the pudding isn't lying too heavy because a uh, bit of dancing to do today, I reckon. Bit we certainly have. And being a festive occasion, a lot of your favourite number ones and twos of 1977, like this from Shawadi Wadi, number two in August, with You Got What It Takes. Drive a big fast car. You don't look like a movie star. Edmonds begins by telling us that he hopes we got what we wanted off Santa and then drops some bollocks about Christmas puddings. And Kid introduces the first act of the night Show Waddy Waddy with You Got What It Takes. We've covered the wads many a time and oft on chart music, and this, their 11th single, was the follow-up to When, which got to number three in April of this year. This single, a cover of the 1959 song co-written with Barry Gorder, which Johnny Kidd took to number 25 in February of 1960, and Marv Johnson took to number seven a month later, went all the way to number two in August of this year, held off number one by Angelo by the Brotherhood of Man. But no matter, here they are in the studio in their multicoloured Ted Trapes. Oh, show Waddy Waddy, welcome back to chart music. It's been too long. Long. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the worst possible start to this episode because mm. it, I don't know if it's possible, never mind desirable, to discuss Shawadi Wadi in much more depth than we've done already. Mm. So maybe we ought to just celebrate being reduced to to grumbling over the lack of tonal range in their multicoloured stage suits here. Mm. Um, yeah. You've got yeah. to say, we've got two ever so slightly different shades of lime green, which yes. I suspect started uh-huh. off as the same shade, but one of them either got left in front of a window or mm. had to be washed a lot more often than the other one. I, I, I'd speculate, but yeah. you know, it's the season of goodwill. Um, and there's one electric blue, mm. one old gold, which is unpleasantly mm. Wolverhampton Wanderers, and then mm. four mutually unsympathetic shades from the same end of the spectrum. And the, the same end of the role yeah. as well. It, yeah. Magenta, fuchsia, hot pink and vermilion. Um, mm. And frankly, it's, it's a bloody mess. And it, it makes them look less like a coordinated pop group than the, yeah. the luminous squiggles that appear in the retina half an hour before, mm. a, before a migraine sets in. I mean, from from this distance, they do look like a load of dads pretending to be in the Power Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> but why so why so shambolic? The multicoloured stuff. You know, I, I, I was waiting for this to come along because I, I did start thinking. You know, who got to Bagsy which colour? And yeah, yeah, is there a hidden meaning to it? And then I I sat back and I started started wondering about you know other uses of specific hues round about the late seventies. And I started to think, are they sending out a message to the pop-crazed youngsters and the families watching at home? So, after a bit of research, here's a cross-reference between Show Waddy Waddy's stage outfits and the gay hanky code. Dave Bartram, in purple, piercing queen. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Trevor Oaks, pink, dildo freak. (laughs) Rod D's, light green. Buys tricks meals. Oh, yeah. Okay. Russ Field, green, 
daddy. <laughs> Buddy Gask read fisting. <laughs> Al James, light blue, cock and ball torture. <laughs> Malcolm Allen read lavender, armpit licking. Right. And Romeo Challenger, orange, anything. Of course. Anytime. Of course. Oh. My yeah. mum would have been devastated, mate. Oh, dear. Imagine explaining that to your nana on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> what, the various things that the members of Show Waddy Waddy may be into. <laughs> this is not casting speculation on the sexuality of any member of Show Waddy Waddy. Uh, I just needed to find something to talk about Show Waddy Waddy because we've done them so many times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have a, a, a cameraman friend who works for a TV station who... Um, you know, about 15 years ago, was sent out to interview Show Waddy Waddy, and he had to wait a quarter of an hour before he could start filming because they were taking turns to watch a video of one of the band shagging his missus on, on a camera phone. Oh, my God. So, yeah. F- fucking yeah. Leicester people, man. Yeah. It beats yeah. having a poly. Yes, it does, yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know what Taylor was saying earlier about this... It's a weird episode of Top of the Pops, this. Mm. And this wad performance, mm. I mean, it starts off, it's kind of just another waddy waddy performance. Yeah. And it's another sort of thoroughly competent, likably fun performance. But it's yes. it's to a strangely haunted studio. Yeah. Yes. And then and then you start noticing, the there's an odd moment, isn't there, where, where one of the singers, um, he's seen pouring champagne yes. from a height into a kind of pewter wine glass. A tiny one. Yeah. Which is which is odd in itself. As the guitarist is seated um, and chuckles behind him, and you, you know it's cut in to make it look like it's part of the performance. And mm. without the ability to rewind in 1977, I would have been fooled. Yeah. But as the performance goes on, you twig that they're cutting in other splices of previous um, Shawadi Wadi appearances. Yeah. So when Bartram's heard singing, but seen blowing a sort of party kazoo thing, yes. and there's that kind of weird. Disturbing Last Supper scenario they keep calling. <laughs> yes, well, the Last Supper of um, that was obviously Wadda. perhaps yeah that was perhaps filmed for this episode. Mm. I mean the the other, the coolest guy there is Challenger who only gets like two cool. seconds of screen screen time. Yeah, but he manages to squeeze in the kind of um, stick spinning coolness that would have had me uh, open mouthed in in yes. wonder. And my mum would have been smiling at that bit too. Yes. Um, I mean, with regards to the rest of them, I mean, I would have Anything, anytime, Neil. (laughs) Well, what was Bartram again, Um, according to that colour code? Uh, Bartram was into... Piercing Queen. See, I think... I made a mental note. Uh, At one point, uh, we get a shot of him and he's doing some very suggestive gyrations and thrusting mm. actions and in some very tight satin trousers, um, yes. you know, practically forcing the family to contemplate the contours of his genitals. Yeah, uh, but I, couldn't, I looked, I looked, because that's how far I'll go for chart music, couldn't see mm. any piercings. Mm. So Maybe, I'd, maybe he was, just wasn't wearing it that day. But I mean, yeah. on, that, on this appearance, aged five, I would have felt kind of confusing feelings of attraction and terror re-Bartram. Yes. Because he's such a handsome dad, isn't he? Yes, but he is. He's got such a terrifying big mouth. That mouth yes. is too big. Yes. But crucially with Bartram, he possesses that most amazing characteristic um, that a little kid would notice. And that's that he looks like he should be American. That's an American yes. face. And that's an American voice. So when I imagined him speaking at that age... It looks like a, a bit like a battered choche. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, at that age, if I'd have imagined him speaking, I would have imagined him sounding American. And I think that's yeah. a massive part of the success of Shibwadi Wadi. If yeah. they were just, if they just had another identical big-eared, pinch-faced Leicester person yes. as their front man, they wouldn't have reached the heights that they did. But his Americanness of voice and, and visage, if you like, made them... I think the top of the 50s retro acts, if you like, in the 70s, they had yes. the most hits. I mean, definitely by 1977, Show Waddy Waddy would have been... If you'd have forced me, I would have said that Show Waddy Waddy was my favourite band. We all <laughs> loved them at school. But this song is not their best, is it? No, it's not. And a horrible sentiment as well. He's basically saying, look, you're a pig, but, you know, yeah. you're still worth a bang. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those backhanded compliment songs, isn't it? Yeah. He's mm. negging, isn't it? Big style. He's your ugly as fuck, and your skint as well. <laughs> your <Yes>. clothes <laughs> are shit, and you probably yes. smell. But, baby, <laughs> you're acceptable to me. I mean, I've, I've thought that about people, but I wouldn't have said it. You know what I mean? No, much less sung let alone sung it. Yeah. But, I mean, in, in most versions of this song, there's a kind of, not quite self-mocking, but a kind of raised eyebrow acknowledgement of what's actually yeah. being yeah. said. But, you know, like Marv Johnson did this song as a kind of rumbling ocarina rave-up. It's like Northern mm. Soul before Northern Soul, or before the music mm. that Northern Soul was taken after. And it's got mm. this really simple and sort of loose but precise feel to it. And before that, Bobby Parker, who actually wrote it, did it as... Uh, there's Bobby Parker, who's What's Your Step is the Beatles' I Feel Fine before the fact, but right. with more guts and less tune. He did it as a kind of drawled, woozy nightclub conversation mm-hmm. with a yeah. sort of with a fantastically horrible guitar solo. And then he got cheated out of the publishing, of course. Um, but... Shawadi Wadi do it like a like a vacuum packed Scotch egg, like <laughs> used by date Nov seventy five. It's the usual sort of yeah. processed filth, but it doesn't stink until you open it up. Yeah. Um, at which mm. point, it really is quite unpleasant. And I mean, Dave yeah. Bartram, never the subtlest interpreter of other people's no. songs doesn't give it any of that sort of, you know, doesn't give that wink to the audience. He just rolls yeah. straight through it, like like yeah, he's yeah. in a shopping trolley, roll, you know, being pushed down the <laughs> aisle at Morrison's, arms outstretched, you know, <laughs> wiggling his little hips. It's so frequently the thing, I mean, like, it, in any late 70s episode of Top of the Pops, you're going to see a lot of looking back. You're going to see a lot of people wishing they were in a different age. I mean, yeah. in this episode, we're going to see people wishing they were back in the 20s, you know, later mm. on. But it's odd. I mean, what, the way Taylor talks about those those old versions of the song. I mean, I was listening there. I, I could not stop listening the other day to, to the version of Blue Moon by Elvis because it's such a fucking strange record yeah. um, vocally and the way it's arranged and, and the production. And, and the halcyon thing that so much 70s pop is reaching for from the 50s is, is yeah, it's kind of the innocence of those times but to do that they have to kind of erase 50s music's oddness completely so mm. the oddity of 50s music and so much of it is so fucking strange yeah these old 50s songs you, it gets transformed as ever into this kind of grease-like super slick 70s pop but just with 50s chords and structures and of course by now by 77 there's so much of this shit about Mm. It starts looking like pop should be convening at Butlins every weekend to relive the golden age of race riots. You know, oh, yes. it, uh, the, the, the only kind of exception to this, I would say, would probably a record that looks back to the 50s, 
but sounds as odd as a 50s record is probably Rock On by David Essex. But that's a complete one-off. The only thing to remotely sound like Rock On is probably, you know, fucking early Keith Hudson singles or something. So it's weird the way that the 50s he's looked back on uh, to, to try and get an innocence that clearly politically 77 doesn't have. But yeah. what they have to ignore completely is the transcendental oddness of so much original 50s music. Yeah. yeah. Still, it's nice to see them at table. Um, yes. <laughs> as poorly mannered as you'd expect. I mean, for anyone who's not seen this mm. yet, it's like, yeah, there's a, like a long table set up, like a banqueting mm. table that they're all set and supposedly having a Christmas feast. Uh, mm set up in front of the miniature stage that they've been performing on and yeah. covered with silver material. I think possibly to convey the sense of space age excitement we associate yes. with the music of Shawadi Wadi. Yes. But also <laughs> more likely to hide the fact that it's not actually a table. It's a bit of the the stage, a bit of the same platform they've been using mm. as a stage. And it's probably got metal struts underneath it rather than legs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's groaning under the weight of all this Christmas fare, except that it's my strong suspicion that that's not real food. It's no. just a load <laughs> of cardboard tat in bowls. Because I paused this and, and squinted. And of course you did. You can't see any recognisable food. The only thing I think that's real is the booze that they're knocking back. And of course, I, I couldn't help but feel cheated because mm. you know if, if you can't trust Shawadi Wadi, who can you trust? Exactly. Yeah. So the Wads closed out 1977 with Dancing Party, a cover of the 1962 Chubby Checker single, which got to number four for two weeks in November and December. And it's a much better song. If that had come on, then it would have been a party. Hmm. You Got What It Takes was also the last song Radio Luxembourg listeners got to hear on the night of August the 16th, 1977, before being told that Elvis had died. Gosh. Oh, this was the this was the solemn music that um, <laughs> Russian radio stations would play before the death of Stalin. <laughs> Neil, yes, would you eat a beef burger made by Show Waddy Waddy? Um, you know what? Um, let's find out because in a blue jeans annual of the late seventies that I came across the other day, I came across a section called Star Snacks. Mm-hmm where um, pop stars uh, gave recipes out. One example uh, that I'm not going to go into is um, Smokey Beano's, which was essentially (laughs) beans on toast for the drummer of Smoker. (laughs) But this one really caught the eye, and I thought I'd run it past you. Show Waddy Waddy love getting together to tuck into big steaks, but if they're recording, they may only have time to tuck into a beef burger. So it's got to be good. Ingredients. One tablespoon of oil. One large onion. One and a half pounds lean mince. One raw egg. Spanish stuffed olives. A tablespoon of tomato chutney. Four soft rolls. Step one. Mix mince with egg and season. Form into four beef burgers and fry in oil together with onion rings. Step two, chop eight olives and mix into chutney. Spread on halved baps and place beef burgers and onion rings inside. Step three, 
you kiss and hold her tightly. <laughs> no, 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 you don't. Hold baps together with a cocktail stick threaded with olives. Serve hot. Um, well, um, sir, your opinion. I, I don't, the thing is with burger recipes like this, I don't want to know it's got egg in it, man, to bind mm. it. I don't like egg. And, and no. olives... Get fucked. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I would not eat these. Maybe I'd eat them if Romeo cooked them and yeah. served them to me. But I wouldn't if Dave Bartram did because I just right. don't really trust where his hands have been. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it's not an anti Lester thing. It's just that in terms of celebrity <laughs> recipes this year, I would much rather eat Starsky's chocolate pancakes from the Starsky and Hutch annual of 1977 yes. yeah, than yeah, I would yeah. eat this Olay burger. Oh, the idea of show what he wanted just around a, an oven, <laughs> showing each other homemade pornography. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hope it's an electric oven because those suits look awfully like they should be kept away from a naked flame. Mm. Maybe they could have done it at Noel Edmonds' gas disco. Wadi Wadi, of course, getting things underway. Now, it's been a great year for Denise Williams. She had a number one in May with Free. on his own on a set that looks like he's trapped inside an enormous Christmas present that hasn't been opened yet tells us that it's been a great year for the next artist Denise Williams with Free we've covered Denise Williams in chart music number 23 and here she is with a single that introduced her to the charts when it was released over here in March of 1976 and took 14 months to claw its way up the charts and finally depose Knowing Me, Knowing You by ABBA off the top in May of this year and here she is in an empty studio facing off once again against her old nemesis the top of the pops orchestra <laughs> oh it's going to be a long day for them lads yeah there's going to be a lot of pubs in shepherd's bush where the staff are just standing around going where the fuck is everyone <laughs> i mean the thing is though well the, the original of this it's obviously it's such a brilliant record the full length oh version. it's, it's a just fucking a, mint the intro i mean all those whooshes and glimmers it's like fucking it's like sunra or something <laughs> yes. and there's a kind of heavy heavy debt i think to rotary connections black gold of the sun as well there's a bit of that in there but as of well. course um this version though i mean it, uh, to me it has its own pleasures um i yes. think the bbc orchestra actually do a fucking good job here they i i love mm, yes they do i love the snappy kind of harsh snare sound it makes it more breakbeaty and um, yes. is she i think she's singing live and, yeah. and yes she is. so the slight sort of thinness of her vocal tone live in contrast to the record it makes her push it a mm. bit and and it gets sharp in a in a really pleasurable way and and yes. although forced i kind of like her mini ripperton at the end as well yes um 
I mean, there's no real pushiness to this performance because there doesn't need to be. Williams no. clearly knows that this song, a song like this, exists on a kind of plateau of perfectness that the listener just gets sucked up into like it's the rapture. It, it's it's, yes. it's one of those yeah. records. So she doesn't need to do much. But in contrast to many BBC Orchestra performances I've seen, I don't think it diminishes it. I, I, I think it actually, I'm not saying no. it improves it, but it's a fucking good, it's a good version. Yeah. It is, yes. Yeah, well, instead of being a production and, you know, like a, 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 a sculpture like the record is, it's just her singing the song and the musicians playing the notes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that, especially as this time the Top of the Pops Orchestra are clearly straining not to disgrace themselves and <laughs> yes. mostly succeeding. I mean, it's true. The drums are the thing that really stands out about this, partly because of the studio mix, which, mm. Mm. first of all, I mean, that's a, a, loose, a, a loosely tuned drum kit. Um, <laughs> and it, so it sounds a bit weird, and it's mixed louder than the Tunguska event. It's probably, it's probably got about three party sevens inside. Yeah, yeah, just to, to damp it down a bit. Just keep them going. But it's, but it works because it's... I mean, and I think we've still got that giant cartoon dog on drums who always drums with the top of the foot yes. just wailing away with his ears flapping around. But he's very restrained here, partly to replicate the very dry and flat and steady drums on the original recording. Um, mm. But also, I think because everything he's playing is so loud, he, mm. just, he wants to yeah. be careful. Um, mm. And he's a very long way from funky, but he just makes like a metronome and doesn't make a nuisance of himself. And the way that you can tell that the, that they're playing much better on this than they were when we saw her before is that yeah. if you remember last time, she didn't do her soprano acrobatics at the end of the song. No. Yeah, yeah. Like she didn't trust the musicians, right? Mm. It was like she was mm. the, the top part of a human pyramid and was yeah. reluctant to jump onto the outstretched arms of uh, Wilfred Bramble and Charles Hawtrey, <laughs> you know. Uh, this time she does it and she just lets go and, 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 and trusts the band enough yeah. to, to keep, yeah. her, keep her in the air. Um, yeah. Although you know, let's face facts, this still sounds like a tool shed liver transplant compared to the the, the <laughs> yeah. that spectral glide of the record, which yeah. doesn't yeah. even sound like humans playing musical instruments in a room on Earth. You know, it's <laughs> just it's just like sunny morning in Asgard. You know, yeah. but if you ask a bunch of clock punchers in grey slacks to replicate that live in a concrete building in White City for 60p. Uh, this is probably the best you can hope for. Yeah. Yes. And there's trust. Yeah, there, the there is trust there because, I mean, remember the other appearance that we, we talked about in the other episode of Chart Music. What they don't give her is that massive peel of feedback at the beginning of this song that makes <laughs> yes. her grin. Yeah, that helps, you know. doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah, trust which she, was, she was visibly startled and yeah, thrown off. Yeah. The general public of Britain, well, the, the single buying people of Britain, they absolutely love black singers with really high pitched voices round about this time. Um, Denise is the uh, is the middle point between Minnie Ripperton and Janet Kay, isn't she? Mm. Bless her. Fucking mint tune. Yeah. So, Free would linger at number one for two weeks before giving way to I Don't Want to Talk About It by Rod Stewart. And the follow-up, That's What Friends Are For, would get to number eight for two weeks in August of this year. 
She finished the year by getting Baby Baby My Love's All For You to number 24 in November and then returned to the top end of the chart in 1978 with someone we're going to come across later in this episode. You heard of Great Big Owl? Yes, they make this podcast. Yeah, but not just this podcast. You're shitting me. Name some others. Well, there's Trolled. We had Luciana Berger and Gary Lineker coming on. Oh, yeah, and there's Crime Club. Did you get done for that? Yeah. There's The Fear. It's a kid's show. They really, really scared me. There's Always There. Thanks very much, because I would never have gone oh. down Howard's way oh. had you not asked me. There's Friends with Friends. Shoving a funnel in Joey's mouth and Rachel pours fat down. <laughs> and there's Ask the Nincompoops. Kids ask us the questions they want answered. That's for kids we shouldn't have sworn earlier. Bollocks. Quick, play the sting. Great big owl. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 1977 certainly saw a lot of new names in our charts. None more than outrageous than this from the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band. in front of a drum kit, tells us that 1977 was the year of change in pop, with new bands rising up and upsetting the order and ensuring that nothing would ever be the same again. <laughs> then he introduces the floral dance by the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band. Formed in 1881 as the Brighouse and Rastrick Temperance Band in the West Ridings of Yorkshire and then dropping the temperance bit in the 1920s, the Brighouse and Rastrick Brass Band were one of the prime exponents of the brass wave movement of the 20th century. (laughs) But it wasn't until 1966 that they landed their first record deal with Pi and put out the EP Christians Awake, which failed to chart. (laughs) By the mid-70s, inspired no doubt by Stiff Records and the burgeoning do-it-yourself ethic, they began to record self-financed LPs for sale at their gigs. And in 1976, they decided to put out one of those newfangled singles. And after considering a cover of Mood Indigo, they plumped for this a song written in 1911 by Katie Moss about the annual furry dance held every year in Helston in Cornwall. 
After signing to Transatlantic Records, the single was picked up on by local radio stations and then by Radio 2's breakfast DJ, Terry Wogan, who would occasionally sing over it. This put them into the top 40 in mid-November of this year. It's currently the number two single in the nation where it's been for three weeks on the bounce and here they are, all togged out, blowing a lot. Oh man, I would have been well pleased to have seen this. Really? Oh, massively. Come on, you all know it. Everyone join it. No, I mean, the thing is, the thing is we've previously discussed on chart music of being of an age before taste, you know, when you Mm. just respond to melody and rhythm. Um, It's really important in this year. And actually, a a bit of music that doesn't have words and and sounds a bit flumpsish Mm. or flumpsesque. Definitely flumpish. You know, that would be right up my street. I mean, uh, you know, if five-year-olds were allowed to drive in 1977, this would be the tune I'd be cranking up and singing out the window. <laughs> I bloody loved it. And, and, and you know, I'm not saying I do now necessarily. Leaning, it does leaning ne- out of your fucking steam engine. <laughs> I would. I mean, it, it, I'm not saying I love it now necessarily. It now does taste a bit gripe-watery. But um, why not a break from all that pop blather? Everyone loves a brass band. Um, and I I just remember massively loving this in 77 as a five-year-old. I remember it being on the B-side of a chart comp whose name escapes me and just repeatedly playing this. So right. though I'm sure as an adult pop critic I could pull it apart, I, I choose instead to uh, remember that idyll of pleasure that I used to get from um, the floral dance. Um, right. it, I got more pleasure, of course, when Terry did it. Terry Wogan did it the following year uh, with his lyrics. But no, I'm sorry, you're not going to get a bad word out of me about the floral dance. Oh. I bloody love it. Right, I'll step in then. Yes, of course. Fight, 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 fight. Well, the, fight. the thing is, the, these are Sarah B's homies. Of yes, course, right, because she hails from Brighouse in West right. Yorkshire. So, what the specials are to Neil mm. and Robert Plant is to me. And the 1979-80 Nottingham Forest squad is to you, Al. These are to Sarah. They're local heroes representing. Um, Or at least half of them are, because I asked her about this, and apparently rival towns, rival schools, Mm. they do things differently in Rastrick. They're not our people. Um, So this is a heartwarming scene. Um, Hands across the water. Um, You know, they made their love on wasteland. So, yeah, this, this, this is essentially the, uh, the the West Riding's version of self destruction, <laughs> or we're all in the same gang. <laughs> but it's a disgusting sound, <laughs> unless you know, unless you really like grey ribbed socks and cold houses <laughs> and things with Thora Heard in, which some people do, yeah. but. It's fish paste on white bread and <laughs> wet railings around the crematorium. And it's like a big granite-faced dimwit authority figure mm. shaking his head no. And why? Why not? Just because, right? This, mm. Just because this is what we have instead of music. And <laughs> basically, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band with all the good bits taken out. Um, yes. And of course, they're not actually very good, which is fine 
because they were amateurs. They weren't a professional band. Um, but it makes it that little bit more painful to listen to. It's got that queasy, out-of-tune halo that you get on some of the lines, <laughs> like a school orchestra, mm. because there, there's a lot of them, and mm-hmm. they can all play, but they're incapable of all playing the right note at the same time, every time. Now, that's kind of a feature of, of brass band music generally, in the same way that yeah. the, the tang of piss is a feature of the taste of kidney. Right? But I don't consume either of these things. And I don't like the sense of oppressive, austere, bony-legged sourness. You know, bony-legged, long-john-wearing sourness in the sound <laughs> and in the world that it suggests. Mm. I mean, you look at them, there are some thin mean-spirited lips on those mouthpieces. <laughs> right. There's some mean, beady eyes peering over those little valve-pumping fingers. And it just yeah. it feels like they're musical sentinels guarding this damp, empty England against any possible influx of flavour or fulfilment. <laughs> uh, you know, God save the fucking Queen and, and bring back the Catherine wheel. Um <laughs> I don't, it's just it just puts puts me on puts me on edge. What about edge. the what about the natural exuberance of band leader Derek Beaumont? Doesn't that cheer you up somewhat? <laughs> it cheers the band up clearly. Um, they look happy. Mm. I mean, to me, Taylor, it's almost like you're saying you didn't like um, I don't know Scottish country dancing lessons or or, or yes. Lord of the Dance mm. said or he go with notes. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me think back. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because to, to me as a nine-year-old, this would be something you had to dance at at school in the oh, assembly yeah, hall yeah, yeah. in your vest and yeah, pants. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I, what I sort of don't like about brass band music as well. It's all in, a, it's all in like E-flat or B-flat mm. or, uh-huh. you know, some weird devil's key like that. <laughs> <laughs> black key freakish it's it's, it's like, that key it's that key for horn players taylor e flat yeah. b flat you know yeah yeah but it makes everything sound straight backed and perky <laughs> and unnatural you know it does feel very familiar because i seem mm. to remember tv yeah. and specifically the bbc and specifically bbc yeah. two having a strange fetish for the the big brass band mm. when i was a kid yeah um, perhaps because they yeah. thought that the fact that there's so many people in it uh, in uniforms makes it telegenic, you know. Um, you know, despite <laughs> despite those people being to a man, you know, bewhiskered old perverts from fucking Yorkshire <laughs> with yeah. greying string vests underneath the livery, you know. I'll, and, I'll give you that. They don't look great. A lot of them look like Bill Werbeneck. Yes. <laughs> so you'd see it a lot on in the Aventies on BBC Two, right? If, you, mm. it, if it wasn't a whimsical folk singer performing mm. at an arts centre in Warrington. It was it was this shit, you know, blaring at you like a cold morning, you know, making <laughs> yeah. the evening feel a bit less exciting. And yeah. I just have this really clear memory of the studio lights hitting off the horn uh, of yeah, a yeah. trombone or a cornet and flaring wildly mm. like, a, <laughs> like an indoor sun which gives no warmth or power. And also noticing how badly fingerprints show up on brass under that kind of lighting. Mm, yes. Very untelegenic, in fact. There's just no way to look smart yeah. or non-grubby or like you don't smell of stewed tea and yesterday's mm. sweat. And, I mean, I mean, what we do get, of course, is the audience yes. or our audience. Yeah, the kids. 
Um, and they yeah. don't help, no, they to be don't. honest with you, um, with their flag waving and their shit dancing. It's well, it's not even flags, is it? It's it's just tassels on a stick, yeah. and they get yeah. one each. Yeah, and it's just like, oh fucking hell, not not again. We've had a whole year of people waving things about for the Queen, mm. and here we are again confronted with it on Christmas Day. And I did notice that this one girl, um, the tassels have come off one of her sticks. But she's still gamely waving a stick about. <laughs> but carry on, man. We make do. If only they were short and somebody had been handed that cat on a stick that was on the Halloween episode. Yes. Yeah, and you know Michael Hill's watching this and sucking a yeah. fucking tooth. Thinking, yeah, five years' time, this is what every top of the pops is going to look like. But the big question about that, that those kids is who are they because there's no audience on the rest of this but this this has been filmed without an audience this episode well we see an audience later on yeah but they're frugging to uh a certain uh ballad singer stroke actor and i think Mm. that's been bust in from a top of the pops Mm. through the year you're probably right you don't see an audience at any other point except suddenly this gang of kids appears from nowhere or somewhere (laughs) and you know they're waggling pom-poms and looking provincial and Mm. i can't work out who or what they are i'm certain they've not been bussed in from brighouse and or rastrick oh well Um, no not both of them they've been stabbing each other there'd be a fucking massive fight going on (laughs) but the bbc surely haven't brought them in just to do this Right. What no, a day out. You don't know my BBC in the 70s. They had a budget. <laughs> but they, just that, just that, their presence, their, their mysterious presence does. <laughs> Imagine if there was a call out there. Oh, come on, we need people for Top of the Pops. And just all these kids legging it to the fucking studio, hoping they're going to see the Sex Pistols or, or David Essex. Yeah. And they get these fuckers. I'd have been happy as a pig in shit. This is a tune. <laughs> but they're, they're, they're mysterious, unexplained presence does add a degree of intrigue to this clip probably (laughs) wouldn't be there otherwise so Mm. you know they had a lovely time whoever they were and once again this is this is none our time isn't it yeah i can imagine me none all there with a fag on just tapping a foot and going oh this is that this is that song about the dance but but, what's it called again terry wogan (laughs) sings it he's ever so funny do you like him (laughs) and i'd be just saying going oh fuck because i i was nine so this stuff was beneath me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine what it must be like. Um, people sitting at home in Cornwall watching this, fucking fuming. Yeah. One of their songs has been nicked by these metropolitan bastards. <laughs> Bunch of northern monkeys. Yeah, yeah. they should be doing their own songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do it on Ilkley Moor Bar Tap. Yeah. Or, yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, the, the, the one good thing you can say is that the, the drummer is good, right? Mm. Is it, he really is. He's really exuberant and enthusiastic. And yeah. to, towards the end, he does this massive rolling drum fill, which is it's mixed quite low, but it's the musical highlight of this by quite some distance. Well, because yeah. it sounds like a, a big roll of thunder preparing to drive these bastards out of the park <laughs> off the bandstand. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the drums yeah. is what makes brass bands uh, good to listen to, I find. Whenever I've seen a brass band live, I've enjoyed the drumming massively. I mean, the thing yeah. is, you say Nanabate, Al, uh, a, a recurrent mm. motif that we're going to get into later is there's an awful lot of records out in 77 that appeal yes. to people who don't buy records, who would never ordinarily buy a record. That's right. And it's, it's the prime example. Yeah, and this is a really good example of it. It's true. I reckon this was played on an awful lot of record players that had a setting of uh, 16. Yes! 
Yes. But what you can say, the floral clock was ticking for these cunts because the Wogan machine was just warming up. Mm. Oh, yes. About to plough right over their memory and erect a statue of old Tell where they once stood. So now their rancid glory reflects only on him. And historically, Mm. it's like they're the majors to his Morris Minor you know, it's, that <laughs> yeah. was a brutal display of burrowing and egg laying uh, from the from <laughs> yes. the limerick born enigma. Terry Van Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this? It's a tune. <laughs> so the floral dance would stay at number two for six weeks, unable to break the grip of the Christmas number one. The follow-up, a cover of Barwick Green better known as the theme tune to The Archers, failed to chart. And after their cover of the theme from Shaft flopped, <laughs> they actually did that. Awesome. They actually did that. And I bet it ruled, man. Who's that private dick who's sex machine to all chicks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's complicated, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They were dropped by their new label, Logo Records, and were never seen in the charts again. But two weeks, only two weeks after this episode went out, Terry Wogan's version, recorded with the Hanwell Band of West London, entered the charts and got to number 21 at the end of January of 1978. Got nowhere near the top of the charts like they did. Now, isn't that weird? Oh, Pop, you're such an evil bastard, aren't you? But that's not how it's remembered. No. Yeah. Wow, that's so that's that's Wogan power. Mm. Okay, Noel, it's quiz kid time. I want to see if you can identify a certain somebody I'm thinking about who had a hit in July of 77. Three names. Uh, Two. Carol Bear-Sager. No. Andy Fairweather-Low. No. Value-added tax. <laughs> OK, uh, I'll give you a, a clue. Think Wilfred of Emerson. Hyde-White. Emerson. Uh, Emerson. Fittipaldi. Oh, it had to be, of course. Emerson, Lake uh, and Palmer. And Edmonds have a go at some triple-barreled name banter, which involves Carol Bayer Sega, Andy Fairweather Low, and ho 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 value-added tags. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I get it. Edmonds even drops an Emerson Fittipaldi joke as well, while Kid exasperatedly introduces "Fanfare for the Common Man" by Emerson Lake and Palmer. Formed in Croydon in 1970 by one member each of the Nice, Atomic Rooster and King Crimson, Emerson, Lake and Palmer were that prog band who hung about the upper reaches of the LP charts throughout the early 70s, who began an extended break in 1974 and fucked off away from each other for two years. In 1976, they regrouped to record their fifth LP, Works Volume 1 a double LP consisting of three solo sides and one group one. 
This track is from the group side, a cover of the 1942 tune written by Aaron Copland, which was used at the beginning of American orchestral concerts during World War II. It's the follow-up to Jerusalem, their only other single released in the UK, which failed to chart when it was put out in 1973, and it spent one week at number two in July of 1977, held off the top spot by So You Win Again by Hot Chocolate. We usually get the video of them playing it in the snow in Montreal's Olympic Stadium during the warm-up for their calamitous 1977 World Tour, which will drag on into March of next year. And as they're not in the country at the moment due to them cancelling the gigs they were supposed to be playing this week at Hammersmith Odeon and the Olympia, and we're all sick of the video, here come Legs & Co. for the first part of today's double shift. Oh, it's dad time. Yeah, but, I mean... Are they on a panto tip or something? It looks like it, doesn't it? Well, actually, no. They're just on a fuck-awful tip here. It, it's a dreadful dance routine. The opening's very slap of my thigh. So mm. it's got that panto feel. But when the music gets going... Yeah. I mean, for starters, bloody hell, how dated does this music oh. sound? It sounds pretty awful. Mm. Um, I was actually angered to learn that they had to seek permission from Aaron Copland to do this. Yes. And that Aaron Copland not only granted permission, but quite liked the results. Mm. You know, this music, Fanfare for the Common Man, has been used a lot and is being used a lot in the 70s for various yes. TV shows, for various tours. I think the uh, Sweet used it, Stones used it before coming on stage. Yeah. Who uses the Emerson, Lake and Palmer version? Aston fucking Villa. That's yeah. who uses it now. <laughs> Um, and this dance routine, I've got to say, uh, it's what, uh, and I will always try and stick up for Legs and Co. Mm. But this is, I think it's one of their worst ever. It's just an endless succession of hat work and mm. bowing and and frogging with, I've got to say, nary a hint of satisfaction to soothe the aging pervert within and without. It, it's just, it's not very good. You say that, Neil, but I mean. Th- th- They've essentially come as pantomime principal boys with uh, yes. frilly white shirts, black neckerchiefs, black tricorn hats, thigh-high boots and knickers, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're wearing those kind of very functional knickers mm. that ladies put on when they're performing in something mm. uh, absurdly short. You know, like ice skaters and yeah. stuff. It's like, okay, you're going to see up my skirt, but yeah. you're just going to get a wall of fabric. Mm. <laughs> And the dance routine is essentially them waving their hats about a lot in between some Christmas yeah. trees and dry outs, so Dad can see their yeah. drawers, basically. Yeah, but Hills Angels would have done it better. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least with Hills Angels, you get somebody smiling with a blackened out tooth to provide hilarity. This is just <laughs> this is just poor. I'm sorry, it's one of the poorest legs and co routines that I've I've seen. Um, it yeah. just rotates around this bowing and scraping and occasional frugging when the when the the band get going. I'm, I'm talking about this to avoid talking about the music because yeah. what can you say about Emerson Lake and Palmer, man? Yeah. But these those outfits are ridiculous. Yes. But I don't know what would be appropriate get up to dance you know to what I mean? fanfare for the <laughs> well, common yeah, man. Yeah, by yeah. I mean, as they've been dressed up as giant weeping infected anal wounds, you know, <laughs> jigging around the Christmas tree and then <laughs> sucking it in. Or or five 
half-rotten rat carcasses mm. just lying completely still behind a big polystyrene stove. But I think Flick, Flick Colby was saving that for uh, Grandma's party by Paul <laughs> Can you imagine meeting someone called Flick and not fancying them? Mm. It's unthinkable, isn't it? It's almost a command. Yeah. yeah. But... It, what you can say, I mean, I hate it in a way when something like this turns up because when you are more or less in line with a consensus view on something that is basically one dimensional, you worry that all you're going to end up doing is being that boring guy off a BBC Four documentary. Yeah, like, well, wasting here's a burning. Time, you know? no, no, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 one, the one that isn't our need. Yeah. Like, he's just talking in his kitchen and. Mm. narrowing the conversation and making everything rote and pointless, Mm. you know. Um, But what you can say here, if for any reason you ever needed to communicate all the various pop cultural facets of the English 1970s to someone who didn't understand the language, this clip would be an excellent visual aid. Mm. Um, (laughs) Although perhaps without any knowledge or understanding of what goes where, it wouldn't explain very much and it might just look like a cultural malfunction, Mm. which is sort of what it is. But, in fact, we get a beautiful contrast between over-ambition and under-ambition, which is very of its time, and between the absurdly and embarrassingly expansive and the cheerfully shoddy, uh, and between prog at its stupidest and loftiest and most sexless, And pop, or at least pop TV, at its most gloriously debased and leering. <laughs> um, on top of which, it's genuinely weird and it's happening in television centre. And it's trying to be sexy in a smiley way that's slightly curdled and which seems very peculiar. So, I mean, it's about as 70s as you can get. Yeah. You yeah. squeeze it together, you get a good, a good sense of the low culture of that particular decade, which is the only way in which this clip is of any value because there is no contrarian consensus busting take on this record no um like brain salad surgery i can sort of accept because at least it's so overwhelmingly grotesque Mm. it has some sort of effect on you whereas this is just you know bad rock and roll clinging to the caboose of classical music and demeaning both in the process Mm. um and there's no charm. Even the even the Doctor Who baseline, which is quite good, is not worth salvaging because you can hear that on one of these days by Pink Floyd mm. without all these other frills and affectations. It's, this record is like it's like somebody standing about two feet away from you talking at you through a megaphone. It's like, <laughs> yeah, all right, mate. All right. Flick Colby really did miss a trick here because if she was going to be as um, as obvious as she had been before, uh, she would have dressed. Legs and Corp as common men and just really mm. confused the dads, made them question <laughs> their own sexuality. But no, no, I've got nothing more to add. I never liked this song. The second instrumental in a row, which is uh, poor scheduling. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they can fuck off. It's weird though, going back to the last time that we did 1977, that episode had yes on it, mm. right? And mm. it's a good illustration of how slowly reality moves while it's actually happening Mm. compared to the speed of history because nobody thinks of 1977 as the uh, yes and elp 
finally exploded into the pop charts. <laughs> no. But that's how long it took for this music to yeah. filter through the halls of residence and onto the radio. And so it, to us, looking back, it seems badly out of time. But it would have been considered current by all but the London hipsters who went on to write the history books. Mm. That's a sort of true chronology of pop, in a sense, um, as opposed to the chronology of rock history that we're all sort of taught. So you're not going to see any punk here because Top of the Pops is a pop show. It's not about these minority concerns. And previous to these things getting in the charts, like Yes and ELP, Prog was, yeah, something that bearded guys who wrote for the music press cared about to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, you know. So this is 77... We're not going to see any punk because most people aren't punks. They only had one house in my street, yes. remember? I mean, the fact that the cultural historians of the day can keep flogging punk, especially if they happen to have been there, um, doesn't mean we should overestimate its wider impact. It changed the look of things a bit and the style of things precisely when it became more commodified by the industry and the media. But in 77, punk was still a minority concern, much as in 74, prog was still a minority concern because it hadn't got any charts. Mm. Um, thank God we're not getting the nine-minute version of this song. <sighs> Fucking too right. Yeah, well, this common man says, thanks for the fanfare, lads. Uh, now stick it back up your arse and die. Nice and quietly. So the follow-up, Sailor V, failed to chart, and this single remains the only ELP single to enter the UK chart. And after their seventh LP, Love Beach, died on its arse in late 1978, they split up for the first time a year later. Good! Fanfare for the uh, common man, and that's Legs and Company, of course. Now, one of the names to emerge in 77 was Carol Bayer-Sager. Quite a big name, really. She wrote this number. She's not just a talented singer. She's a very good composer. She wrote When I Need You for Leo Sayer. When I need you I just close my eyes Edmonds drops the name of Carol Bayer Sager once again, making us think that we're going to get you moving out today. We've got to number six for three weeks in June of this year, but oh no, he swerves us by introducing When I Need You by The Old Sailor. We've already covered The Old Sailor in chart music number 23, and this single, the follow-up to You Make Me Feel Like Dancing, which got to number two in November of 1976, finally put him on the summit of Pop Mountain when it usurped Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, in February of this year. As Edmonds points out, it was co-written by Carol Bay Sega and Albert Hammond, and it's a cover of the title track of Hammond's LP of 1976. And here he is, in the studio, under a big spotlight. Under a big spotlight and part of a very dead spot as well. <laughs> this would not be agitating my nine-year-old self. No. When I Need You, or Famous Blue Raincoat, as it's known in its better version, with good lyrics by Leonard Cohen. But, I mean, that came years before this, of course. (laughs) But I heard this record when it came out, 
And I only got into Leonard Cohen when I was a teen. Mm. So it was really startling to me when that came up because it's it's counterintuitive that a, a slick professional songwriter would steal tunes mm. from Leonard Cohen. But so there are a lot of true facts, aren't there? Mm. At the time, I would have hated this. This is precisely what I'd have hated, age five. It's so fucking slow, man. Um, and yeah. age five, you like fast, or at least jaunty yes. music. And with this, there's yes. all these soppy words, and it's all slow and sad. And I would have been confused as well, because, uh, you know, although the old sailor, I, I would have known him as a singer, I, he looks... I checked, he never presented an episode of the BBC <laughs> programme Play Away, but bloody hell, he looks like he should have. He yeah, looks like a kid's presenter. Really does. He, you know, <laughs> singing a song with Brian Cantor about an emperor called Caractacus or something. It would have yes. confused me, the old sailor, at age five, because I can see him, you know, in my head, in a polo net, telling a story to Hamble on play school, or later when he was still having hits in the early 80s, I would have, <laughs> I could have sworn down I saw him asking Chock-a-Block to show him a picture of a crow or something. Um... But I have to say, um, mm. you know, also there's problems with what he's wearing, um, slightly. Um, he's wearing an ice hockey top. Buffalo Sabres. Is that what they are? Because I thought it looked a bit ISIS. Um, it looked a bit like... It looks <laughs> no, a bit like it's cross- ISIS, not ISIS. <laughs> yeah, it's the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, he's wearing number 14, which was the uh, the number of Rennie Robert. I see. Yeah, I see, thought it was cross That's how deep we go on chart music. <laughs> But there is a sense, I mean, this Albert Hammond song, that he's been given a number one bolted on hit after mm. a few number twos that he's had before. Mm. And it's a it's a big, spacey, slick production for mm. Leo. It kind of erases his persona a little bit. With The Old Sailor, I mean, I only really mm. like Thunder in My Heart, and I have a strange relationship with Orchard Road later on. But... um but this this sucks. I mean, this 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 yeah. is a this this at age five. This was just a yeah. dreary, dull. When does this finish? Moment yeah. of the show. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You, and you would have gone. Well, hang on, wasn't he on Playboard earlier this morning? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He's got that lily crap look. I mean, I'm I'm quite glad that this is a ballad because it means we're spared his usual manic theatricality. Yeah. Which makes me want to scratch all my own skin off. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, the, the uh, Al's just touched on this. The, the, we, we sort of mentioned this last time, but it's all, it's basically it's the only interesting thought you can have about the old sailor, which is that yes. Wayne Sleep, yes. Christopher Lillycrap yeah. and him should have put oh. their heads together, merged, <laughs> yes. merged curls... And formed a kind of chirpy human Cerberus. Yes. Um, in tight, pale blue jeans, white pumps and a rugby shirt. Mm. Uh, could have got Tommy Boyd in as backup. Mm. Or possibly Martin Shaw if they wanted to add a bit of unconvincing steel. <laughs> mm. But those are really the poster triplets of the tight curls and dancing feet thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just very small dancing feet. Dainty hoofs on bopping Six stone smilers. Like the human centipede, but ear to ear instead of mouth to anus. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that the strangest of socio-cultural sub-threads? People mm. like that. There's, they've gone now, mm. but there, there mm. were quite a few of them around, you know, yeah. with their pale blue jeans, back yeah. pockets, flat against their ironing board arses, mm. you know, <laughs> creeping everyone out. Like a bit of male jewellery, 
lollipop silhouettes. Um, I don't know, if he'd come along 10 years later, maybe Davy Jones could have got a perm and joined mm. their ranks. You know, he's almost He's got the <laughs> widely spread arms to take up more space and the, the feet constantly in motion. I mean, Roger yeah. Daltrey discovered the old sailor in the early 70s, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always wondered, do you think he was employing him as a mini-me in the early 70s? <laughs> Gave him a little fringe jacket. <laughs> Give him a little microphone to whirl about. Yeah. yeah. Among other things, it destroys Roger Daltrey's solo records. Because mm. for his solo records, he chose to uh, not do the, the blustering, bombastic rock of The Who anymore. And he does a load of old sailor-style ballads and yeah. stuff. But it's Roger Daltrey. Mm. It's, yeah, it's mm. ill-advised, I think. It's too much time hanging out with Adam Faith. When I need you. Watch your backs. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think perhaps the most sort of deeply annoying thing about the old sailor is that sense always with him that everything bounces off him. That any criticism you give him, it'd be like, he's kind of like Christa Berg in that sense. Mm. That he, he would just answer back, oh, you think I'm shit, do you? Well, it is lucrative shit and I'm perfectly happy. You know, he's got mm. that endless comeback that his records fucking well sell mm. to a huge degree. But my God, this moment, though it was Christmas Top of the Pops, I would have walked out of the room because those kind of dreary, sad songs, who wants to hear them on Christmas oh, Day? And, and this this episode is, is slowly but surely, it's really, my, my, I can just picture my five-year-old face just falling yes. as, as this episode continues because it's just it, it's not the hour of pop excitement that no, I would have expected really it, it's, isn't it's really not no. you actually want yeah. the fucking Brighouse and Rastrick band back don't you yeah I definitely take back, I take back everything I said Neil <laughs> because the thing is is that the, the, the charts the top end of the charts in 1977 come to think of it were absolutely sodden with stuff like this because mm. I remember Every Sunday, I'd uh, me and my dad would go and see me on our own grandpa's for the day. And uh, we'd come back about between half six and quarter to seven, you know, when the charts were on Radio One. Yeah. And I, what I used to do, my dad, he had a he had a Ford Cortina and he had an open glove compartment, you know, no little door on it or anything. Mm-hmm. So what I used to love to do was kind of like lean forward while he was driving and grab the sides of the uh, underbit of the of the glove compartment and pretend I was on a motorbike. <laughs> and I was really hoping for really fast music so I could really get into it mm. and pretend I was motorbiking down the Queen's Highway like a streak of lightning. Mm. And it would be this, a couple of number ones we're going to hear uh, later on. Don't cry for me, Argentina. It's like, oh, come on, <laughs> give me something fast. Yeah, totally. That's what this song reminds me of. Yeah, the one, the one thing that makes the record of this sound a little bit present and alive mm. is that Richard Perry production, which we don't even get it because it's the top of the Pops Orchestra yeah, again. Yes. On their best behaviour, yeah. leaning, leaning quite heavily on their... Fender Rhodes going through an echo unit to sort of replicate that modern AOR sound. Mm. But really, it's the Richard Perry sound. His production really defined mainstream 70s uh, adult-oriented pop, Mm. you know. And that explains why it sounds more interesting than its 21st century equivalent, Mm. you know. There's a slightly peculiar, unnatural balance of instruments, you know, and... uh, People used to call these records bland, which they are, but there's something genuinely great about the way he makes them sound radio smooth and a bit unnatural and sonically 
idiosyncratic, you know. Mm. And it makes funny kind of sense that when you look into it, he started off uh, producing Captain Beefheart right. and Tiny Tim. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, it's a beautifully unnatural thing. But, yeah, once you reduce it to just the old sailor singing in front of a bunch of musicians, it's like the the paper hat is just sliding down your face. <laughs> you know what I mean? Gradually. Yeah. As this is but up. the potential slip-ups that could have happened, because there's a very key stop-start moment in the record, obviously, that hold out, it's cold out, that bit. Um the BBC orchestra get it right, and and later on, yeah. as the song reaches its end, the old sailor starts flexing his pipe somewhat and becoming, mm. you know, less sort of controlled than the record is in a sense. He he starts sort of uh, vocally doing a few gymnastics, but uh, I would have still been waiting out of the room, to be honest with you, my, with my fingers in my ears, asking my mum and dad when it was finished so I could come yeah. back in the room. It's just yeah. so dreary. No, it's, it's- it's funny that bit when he starts scats yeah. like he's just lost control. The music's just swept him. He's like Van Morrison. <laughs> just, he's lost control. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. So when I need you stayed at number one for three weeks, eventually being deposed by the next single we're going to hear. The follow-up, How Much Love, would get to number 10 in May of this year and he'd close out 1977 with Thunder in My Heart, which got to number 22 in October, but was remixed by Mech and got to number one in February of 2006. Right then, Pulp Craze Youngsters, that's enough for one episode. Me and Taylor and Neil are going to go off and look out the front window at the big lads falling off the skateboards. We'll <laughs> reconvene tomorrow. Hope you're having a lovely Christmas. Until then, stay Pulp Crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. <laughs> <laughs>